Chapter 5 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3. Recording by Kevin Callan Boyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 5. On Wednesday, December 26th at 3 o'clock p.m., it being about the same time of the same day that Anderson was completing his preparations to leave Moultrie, Mr. Barnwell, Adams, and Orr, the three commissioners from South Carolina, reached Washington. They were by authority of the convention empowered to negotiate a treaty of peace and friendship between the embryo republic and the United States, to secure the delivery of the forts, arsenal, and lighthouses, to divide the public property and apportion the public debt, and generally to settle all pending questions upon the assumption that South Carolina was no longer a member of the Union, but an independent foreign state. Arrived at Washington, they found their friends no less hopeful that some, at least of these important negotiations, could be without delay conducted to a successful issue. Six days had passed since the passage of the Ordinance of Succession, and that revolutionary declaration had been, to say the least, tolerated as an act of the people, without a word of official criticism, dissent, or even definition. Four days had passed since the convention had given the commissioners their credentials, and yet the hourly communications of the telegraph had brought them no word of discouragement. On the contrary, their coming was expected and the course of action to be pursued towards them had been officially deliberated upon and settled. President Buchanan had determined to assure them that he had no authority to decide what shall be the relations between the federal government and South Carolina, thus conveniently shirking his sworn duty to assert and maintain existing relations as defined by the Constitution and laws, and thereby officially raising a presumption that they had been or might be changed by the action of South Carolina. Shrinking from the doctrine of this message, that secession is revolution, he now, instead of enforcing the penalties of treason against these avowed revolutionists under the Constitution and law of nations, proposed to receive them as private gentlemen of the highest character and communicate to Congress any proposition they might have to make. This was certainly strewing the pathway of revolution with roses. The executive of the nation assaulted not only forgoes his power and duty of defense, but complacently volunteers to become the intermediary of the assailants for acknowledgment and recognition. There being no concealment about the temper and purpose of Mr. Buchanan, the arrival of the commissioners were promptly communicated to him and he, with an equal promptness, appointed an interview with them at one o'clock of the next day, Thursday, December 27th. On their part, the commissioners deliberately settled themselves for business by taking a house and appointing a secretary. But at sunrise on Thursday, things were no longer as they had been at the previous sunset. Anderson's move on the military chessboard had changed not only the game of war, but yet more radically the game of politics. The Charleston authorities, bewildered by the event, probably expected treachery from the administration, 
and under this impulse delayed the transmission of the news northward. They, however, sent the information to the commissioners at Washington, who communicated it to Mr. Buchanan. If the president had any intelligible theory of the future, it was that he should be permitted to end his official term without war, that the Charlestonians would respect their promise not to attack Anderson, that Congress would tolerate the secession by South Carolina as a transient necessity and hold the other threatening states with some tempting compromise. This comforting dream was rudely dispelled by the news, and instead of enjoying quiet repose in a secure anchorage, he found himself adrift on a dreaded sea of troubles. Catching at straws, Buchanan's first impulse was to assume that Anderson had abandoned Moultrie in a panic, and to restore the status quo by ordering him back into that fort. He had the distinct impression that his orders did not contemplate or permit the change, showing either how ignorant he was of the Buell Memorandum, which had passed under his personal notice only six days before, or how thoroughly that contradictory document had mystified him as well as others. Had the influences, which were theretofore paramount in Washington, yet remained, it is more than likely that this first impulse of the president would have been carried out. But things were changed at the Capitol as well as in Charleston. An embezzlement of near a million dollars worth of Indian trust bonds had come to light and kept the federal city and the whole country in a ferment for nearly a week. A department clerk and a New York contractor were in prison, but the responsibility of the fair was brought home to Secretary Floyd so pointedly that the president had three days before requested his resignation. Floyd was in no haste to comply, and Mr. Buchanan was too timid to summarily dismiss his disgraced minister who still exercised the functions of Secretary of War. Anderson's report, written at 8 p.m. on December 26th and sent by mail and not yet reached Washington, Floyd was therefore incredulous about what the commissioners told him, but took immediate steps to verify the rumor. Intelligence has reached here this morning, he telegraphed to Anderson on the morning of the 27th, that you have abandoned Fort Moultrie, spiked your guns, burned the carriages, and gone to Fort Sumter. It is not believed because there is no order for any such movement. Explain the meaning of this report. The telegram is correct, replied Anderson. I abandoned Fort Moultrie because I was certain that if attacked, my men must have been sacrificed, and the command of the harbor lost. I spiked the guns and destroyed the carriages to keep the guns from being used against us. And he added, if attacked, the garrison would never have surrendered without a fight. Meanwhile, the cabinet was called together to deliberate on the unwelcome news. During the two weeks which had elapsed since the retirement of Cass and Cobb, a profound change had occurred among the president's advisors. Philip F. Thomas of Maryland, also a secessionist, was made Secretary of the Treasury, a substitution which brought no reform, but on the other hand 
Jeremiah S. Black, had been made Secretary of State and greatly transformed in the political sentiments and acts. And Edward M. Stanton, a man of iron will and hearty Union sentiment, nominated to succeed him as Attorney General. A new and healthier atmosphere pervaded the Executive Council chamber in the discussion of the crisis. A session of an hour ought to have sufficed to dispose of it. But the political condition of the nation was so abnormal, the public service so disorganized, and the executive so timid, that for three and four nights, from the evening of the 27th to the morning of the 31st, Anderson hung doubtfully in the balance between honorable approval and disgraceful censure. Though under the accusation of theft and the intimation of dismissal, Secretary Floyd came up to the help of the imperiled conspiracy with vigor and audacity. Dropping the cloak of unionism under which he had been hiding his misdeeds for a month, he maintained with vehemence the existence of a mutual pledge created by the president's truce of the 10th, and claimed that Anderson had violated this pledge, alleging there was nothing in his instructions which could in any wise justify his removal to Sumter. Against this assumption, Mr. Black, the new Secretary of State, took much more radical ground than he had hitherto occupied. He insisted that Anderson's transfer was in perfect accordance with his orders, announced his unqualified approval of it, and asserted the duty of the administration to sustain it. In regard to the issue thus raised, the president exhibited his usual irresolution. He denied the technical existence of a pledge, but could not, of course, deny its spirit, and sided with Floyd in the belief that Anderson's zeal had outrun the limit of his instructions. The Buell Memorandum, and the modifying order were sent for, and now for the first time underwent cabinet criticism. The studied ambiguity of these papers furnished arguments for both sides, the entire question turning upon the point whether Anderson had tangible evidence of a design to proceed to a hostile act. The passion of the cabinet members rose with their war of words. Floyd became more aggressive and submitted a written demand that he should be allowed at once to order the garrison to be withdrawn entirely from the harbor of Charleston, alleging that the government was dishonored in the violation of its most solemn pledges. Pending the discussion, the cabinet adjourned until evening. The president's audience to the commissioners had been postponed until the next day, but they were not idle. All that day and until midnight, they were the center of the consternation, the hopes, and the counsels of the conspirators. Meanwhile, the official leakage, the Baltimore dispatches, and finally the issue of the afternoon newspapers had communicated Anderson's coup to the whole federal city. General Scott, confined to his sick room and writhing under the persistent disregard of his advice by the executive and his studied exclusion by the Secretary of War, sent his aide-de-camp to remind the president of the existence of such an officer as the general-in-chief of the American armies. Since the formal order unaccompanied by special instructions assigning Major Anderson to the command of Fort Moultrie, no order, intimation, suggestion, or communication 
for his government and guidance has gone to that officer or any of his subordinates from the headquarters of the Army, nor have any reports or communications been addressed to the General-in-Chief from Fort Moultrie later than a letter written by Major Anderson almost immediately after his arrival in Charleston Harbor, reporting the then state of the work. So ran the message delivered to the President, giving him substantial food for reflection upon the methods of his Secretary of War. The spokesmen of the political factions also thronged to the White House with argument and counsel. The Republicans, of course, were obliged to remain aloof, as were also Mr. Douglas and his adherents. But the secession Democrats from the South were persistent in their appeals to have Anderson remanded to Moultrie or entirely withdrawn, while on the other hand, the administration Democrats from the northern states, though few in number, were urgent that he should be approved and sustained in his courageous step. In the evening, the adjourned cabinet meeting resumed its deliberations and continued the session to a late hour. Reports went forth to the northern newspapers that night that before its close, a vote of four to three had decided against ordering the troops back to Moultrie. This, however, was premature. Whether a vote was taken or not, the question did not reach a decision. What was done is described in the language of Mr. Buchanan. In this state of suspense, the president determined to await official information from Major Anderson himself. The president determined to await official information from Major Anderson himself. After its receipt, should he be convinced upon full examination that the major, on a false alarm, had violated his instructions, he might think seriously of restoring for the present the former status quo of the forts. But the aggressive acts of the insurgents were continually outrunning the vacillating decisions of the president. During the afternoon and evening of Thursday, while the cabinet meetings and conspirators' caucuses were in session, and while Mr. Buchanan's irresolution was being tortured by the entreaties of the Southern radicals and the remonstrances from his conservative friends of the North, active war, bloodless as yet, but active war no less, was being waged by Governor Pickens against the national sovereignty, and Fort Moultrie, Castle Pinckney, and Arsenal Post Office and Custom House at Charleston, for want of rightful assertion and protection, passed into the hands of the insurrection as already stated. Like the news of Anderson's transfer the day before, the information of this outrage upon the flag was suppressed by the Charleston authorities. Beyond its transmission, perhaps, to their friends in Washington, none of the transactions at Charleston on Thursday afternoon and night were permitted to be telegraphed to the north until about 10 o'clock on Friday morning, the 28th, probably in the hope that the order for Anderson's return could be extorted from the president before he should be stung to resistance. The seizures at Charleston, made on the personal judgment of Governor Pickens, and against at least the implied consent of the convention, were of doubtful expediency for them. The Richmond Whig 
denounced them as a shameful outrage and soundly berated South Carolina for not being content to go out of the Union peacefully. These, however, might still have been turned to advantage, but for the more serious blunder now committed by the commissioners themselves. Their promised interview with Mr. Buchanan, postponed from 1 o'clock on Thursday, on account of the Anderson News, was held at half-past 2 on Friday the 28th. The president had it that afternoon heard of the Charleston outrages and knew that from being the agents of a conspiracy, they had now become the emissaries of an insurrection. But he failed to note the Declaration of the Constitution that treason against the United States consists in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. He determined to listen with patience to what they had to communicate. On their introduction, he stated that he could recognize them only as private gentlemen and not as commissioners from a sovereign state, that it was to Congress and Congress alone they must appeal. He nevertheless expressed his willingness to communicate to that body as the only competent tribunal any propositions they might have to offer. It is difficult to imagine the feeling of the commissioners under this treatment, whether it was one of grateful relief or profound contempt. Instead of being cast into prison, they were admitted to a considerate social conference with this executive of a foreign nation and treated to friendly private advice how best to accomplish the objects of their mission. According to his explanations, the Constitution indeed forbade his recognizing their authority or deciding their claim, but he would give his claim point and dignity by referring it officially to Congress with the sanction of a presidential message. Had sound judgment guided them, they would have seized eagerly upon the quasi-acceptance of their mission, which virtually gave them the president as an ally divided and paralyzed Congress by an active and concerted intrigue, and made a conciliatory appeal to the commercial apprehensions of the northern cities and manufacturing districts. But instead, they now ventured their whole success upon a single desperate chance, assuming a tone of anger and accusation. They impugned the honor of the government and asked explanations of Anderson's conduct under the childish threat of suspending negotiations which were not yet begun. And in conclusion, they added, we would urge upon you the intermediate withdrawal of the troops from the harbor of Charleston. Under present circumstances, they are a standing menace which renders negotiation impossible, and as our recent experience shows, threatens speedily to bring to a bloody issue questions which ought to be settled with temperance and judgment. The adoption of this ultimatum by the conspirators shows the strong confidence they had in their complete domination over the will of Mr. Buchanan. Unprepared for war, they abruptly closed their only avenue to successful intrigue. Feeling assured that all resistance from the president would break down, and that his infirm purpose would unconditionally yield their demand. 
But under wiser advice, Mr. Buchanan's hesitating decision finally went against them. And in that failure terminated the last and only hope of accomplishing peaceable secession. End of chapter 5. Recording by Kevin Callan Boyle.